Hey, good morning. I have the privilege of introducing someone to you this morning. And in our morning of gratitude, as we praise God for his goodness and as we thank him for what a great God that we serve, I find myself really grateful. In fact, one of the things I wrote on my card this morning was just grateful for the people in my life who have shaped me, who have changed me. And those people are, some of them in this room, some of them in my life group, some of them in my family. Um, But there's so many that I have met very recently. We only have a few hours between us, but has already shaped me in my conversations with him and someone that I'm excited to do ministry with in the coming year. Len and Beth Kinzel are here for the next year from Quito, Ecuador, and really excited to hear from him this morning. So would you welcome him this morning? Len, come on up. We are glad to have you here and hear from you this morning. Got these fancy North American gadgets. Es una silla. Practice with me. Es una silla. Well, you have no idea how much more Spanish you're going to need over the next year with us here. Just beware. There we go. Yeah, so I, I mean, I fought with myself for a long time before deciding on the first words I wanted you to hear coming out of me. So here we go. In the beginning, God. See, I want to try to be as clear as possible. I believe the story is first and most about God. And we fit into his story. But it is so disturbingly easy to get that flipped around and to start to think or to approach life believing the story is first and most about us. And God, well, he's just some part of our story. I especially wanted to begin with, in the beginning, God, because I've been asked to tell a little of my story And how we ended up with this crazy privilege of being among you for the next year or so. So so I'd love you to pray with me, for me, now, and for the next... He told me I had like 95 minutes, so let's go. (laughs) Or maybe I just forgot English. Father, you know, because you're transforming me. I would really much rather dig into this Bible. But I'm in this awkward place where I'll be talking about how you've been unleashing the Holy Spirit to dig deeper into me. Long after I'm done, God, may people be thinking of you way more than my story. Help. Amen. So yeah, Beth and I have been, I don't know, vocational missionaries. 
with HCJB or Reach Beyond, as it is known now, for far longer than either of us ever dreamed we would be. I headed to Ecuador from the Canadian prairies for the first time in September of 1990. Beth had arrived in, am I allowed to say it? 86. She went when she was three. She was sent by what was then Whittier Hills Church. Now, we have two daughters who were born in Ecuador, consider themselves muy ecuatorianas, which is very Ecuadorian. Jenny is 21. She is here with us in SoCal to pursue her passion of aerial dance. Uh, Casey is 19 in her second year on the medical side of things and running at Baylor in Waco, Texas. Really? Sick them. I learned that over the past year and a half. That's all I got out of her college education, so it's money really well spent so far. Uh, but because of all our years in Ecuador, Beth and I have been kind of required to take a year of what is called home ministry assignment, although after three decades in Ecuador, L.A. feels a lot more like a foreign field than home. But a lot of you folks are already changing that. Thanks for making it feel like home already. That's a real Reader's Digest version of who we are and how we ended up here. But I've been asked to say a little more than that. So you know a little about who's been given this hilarious privilege of joining your pastoral team for the next year. So, in the beginning, God... And at some point after that, I was born on the Canadian prairies, September 1st, 1963. Do the math, 52. Uh, My birthday was right at the start of the school year, so my parents had this choice of starting me in first grade at the youngest possible age or, or waiting almost a full year. They went with option number one, so I started first grade having just turned five, and before I discovered creative yet stupid ways to kill brain cells, my brain used to work pretty well, and I did second and third grades in one year. That means I was 12 when I started high school, and I was 16 when I graduated, which some people would say, cool, not me. I mean, you've likely already noticed I'm not exactly big. It was extra hard being two years behind pretty much everyone through what are already some pretty hard years. Kids have a unique way of reminding you of things like your size. So something inside me began hearing and began being shaped by some version of each of these statements and often a mixture of these statements. You're not doing enough. You're not doing what you're doing well enough. You are not enough. Try harder. Those kinds of statements in my case were even more damaging because I didn't know what enough was. And I couldn't identify who I was trying to convince I was enough. 
or that I'd done enough. Uh, even though I was voted president of a school of 1,600 students, I played four sports, I got the lead in the school play, I never felt it was enough. I, I, I always thought if I did just a little more or did what I was doing just a little better, this unidentified someone would care and would say so, and I would finally feel better. Anybody relate? At all? Well, near the end of high school, I got into something that did make me feel better temporarily, and it got me noticed. I could drink. I could drink a lot. I could drink a lot more than many guys twice my size. Beer or hard stuff didn't matter. Now, I know at 52, it's a really dumb reason to get noticed, but when you're 15, being noticed matters more than common sense. And all the 15-year-olds are now against me. Uh, sports parties began to matter way more than academics, and that was okay because I wasn't getting noticed for my grades anymore because back when school had been so easy for me, for me, I never really learned how to study. My grades did not get me anywhere near any university, which was okay because we didn't have the money for that. So I got a job in and then managing a sporting goods store, and that kept me playing sports, mostly with grown men. I was 17 and then 18, and I was smaller, and I was a lot less developed, at least physically, than the men. So I did what I had done all along. I, I tried harder than them, and that included the games themselves and what went on after the games. Uh, guys... And I, not guys, these guys like to drink as much as they like the sports. So I was able to keep up with them in sports and in the bars. Meanwhile, it was becoming clear that a life in retail just wasn't for me. And, and I found out that my parents had this really small educational fund for me. But even back then, $2,000 wasn't going to go very far in any university even if I could have done something to somehow bring my high school grades up. And I really, to this day, don't remember why I decided to go, but I ended up at a small trade school for broadcasters, and $2,000 just happened to be what it cost. So I enrolled. And I actually quickly did well as an announcer, and I actually really liked it, especially news, and that was good because it really seemed like my only option. As I settled in behind a typewriter, <laughs> yeah, I know, I settled in behind the typewriter and the microphone, the wildlife away from the newsroom got even wilder. I wasn't even 20, so technically I became a teen alcoholic while climbing the professional ladder in the radio industry. After a couple of upward moves, I was hired at a top station in a big city a long way from home. But at that point, for some reason, now I know it was the Holy Spirit, everything that had been making up my wildlife just stopped being fun. 
It just had no attraction to me whatsoever. And I wanted to let my parents know I was getting my life straightened out without actually confessing I'd been messed up in the first place. Uh, My dad and I never really talked, so I told my mom I'd started going to church. Now, I had not been brought up at all in what would be called a churched home, but I knew my mom was raised Catholic. Didn't know what that meant, but but somehow I thought telling her I was going to church would let her know that I was on a, a good road without confessing I'd been on a bad road. Well, then I got a big promotion to a city just two hours from my parents, and I got worried my mom would find out I had been lying and lying about going to church. And that really scared me. So I decided, I I was still a pretty logical guy, I decided I would just go to a church, and then it wouldn't be a lie anymore. So with no idea what a denomination was, I grabbed the Saturday newspaper, I turned to the religion section, and I picked the church for the next day. All I wanted to do was turn my lie into truth, so I chose the church closest to my apartment. Anybody here this morning that did that? (laughs) Yeah, I remember, like, you're going to admit that, right? Man, the building and the people were so old. No offense, because I'm one of you now. Nobody had told me what you're supposed to wear. So my t-shirts and shorts, Canadian prairies, backpack, flowered baseball cap, man, that stood out among the silver hair and all the black suits. But something about the preaching part got to me, and, and, and it pulled me back each Sunday. Right around then, even though I was still just in my early 20s, I was offered a highly prized morning slot at a station in one of the biggest cities in Canada. So, I mean, I was making it big. But something inside had started asking, so what? And I I began to realize each step up the ladder of success was kind of making me feel worse rather than better. So I went against all logic, amazed everyone, and turned that job down. And God's design at that point included me building a healthy friendship with a young lady who worked in a clothing store, a a pastor's kid. Like, I knew what that was. Well, Well, many of our conversations turned to church and to God and to my confusion about a lot of things. And the only Bible I had was the New Testament the Gideons gave us back in elementary public school, so that'll tell you just how long ago I was in elementary school. It was this old King James version, and I could not make sense of it. So that young lady urged me to get something she called a living Bible. Went to the bookstore with no idea what to expect. Something, you know, with a pulse on the shelf. 
So I got that living Bible, Easter weekend, 1988. I took it and I headed for the family cabin all by myself in the dead of a Canadian winter. I mean, nobody was around, which was perfect because I wanted three days of isolation to just think about my life and to study the Easter story for the very first time. And, and all by myself, I started reading about Jesus' arrest and the torture and the trial and the crucifixion. And, and, and while I was reading, scenes from my life just started playing in my mind. Scenes from the wildest parties to the guilt I felt about lying to my mom. And those scenes just kept playing as I kept reading what Jesus went through. And the next thing I knew, I was just wailing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Help me. Literally. Had no clue what was going on. Now I believe, led by the Holy Spirit, I was crying out to the Savior. It was a living example of what Jesus said in John 6, No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or her. And I was experiencing what Paul wrote about. No one can really say, Jesus is my Lord, except by and under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, as I got back into life, even though I really didn't know who he was, the Holy Spirit began making me really disgusted with what journalism was becoming, with all the bias and the sensationalism. And that was 30 years ago. So you can likely imagine what I think of mainstream journalism today. Well, I don't know what, literally out of nowhere... I got a phone call from the general manager of a pro football team telling me he had heard about me from another reporter and he asked me to come for an interview. And after just 30 minutes, this dude offered me the job of director of media and public relations with this pro football team. I mean, I had grown up like any sports crazy boy, idolizing that team. And I accepted the offer without giving it a second thought. And the workload was brutal, but man, I loved that job. The 18 months I spent there formed some of the best memories of my life. It was where I first began to study the Bible. And I did it in the most unlikely setting. The players on the team who were Christians took me in. I I didn't know You could be a Christian and a football player. So there I was, I mean, easily the littlest guy around. I don't know if this is going to get me in trouble for saying this, but a little very white guy (laughs) hanging out studying the Bible with some huge and mostly African-American men. They were the ones that taught this little guy the Bible. A couple of months into that job, about six months after that encounter with Jesus at the cabin, the girl who urged me to get that living Bible invited me to a Bible college. Like I knew there was something like that. For something she called a missions conference. Had never heard of such a thing. 
she knew I still loved radio, and she said the main speaker was the president of something she called a radio mission in some country called Ecuador. <laughs> See, I, I still believed in journalism, just not what it was becoming. And that combined with a feeling of unrest in spite of that great job with the football team. So I grabbed brochures for what I thought were radio jobs all around the world. And I sent dozens of what I thought were job applications. But the few responses I got said I needed Bible training. I couldn't see what Bible training had to do with radio news. And the excitement just kind of faded. Well, months went by, and the heavy demands of the football team were starting to clash with some things that were becoming very important to me. I'd been asked to take on two roles in a new church, underlining how little that church did to really screen its people. <laughs> um, I started leading high school Sunday school. Oh, am I? As a pastor now, I just shudder at this. I started leading high school Sunday school and a young adults group. See, this whole church thing was so new to me, I didn't know. Someone should have told me I didn't know what I was doing. Or I should have told someone I didn't really know what I was doing. Something should have happened. But when someone would ask me a question, or I would come up with a question of my own, I would tackle it like a researcher reporter. Man, I spent hours just wrestling with my Bible, and somebody introduced me to these things called commentaries. And, and I spent hours in books, and I spent hours, I'm a marathon runner, so I'd spent hours with a Walkman, with a cassette in it, listening to audio sermon after audio sermon, and just anything else I could get my hands on to find answers to all these questions. And the time I needed to do that was one of the main reasons I left that job with the football team, and I took the job as the editor and the host of the midday news at a local TV station. Look at this face. Only God would line things up that this face would get a job in TV news. <laughs> Soon after I got that job, I got a letter from HCJB in Ecuador. And it came right when I had been encouraged to audition for a church drama tour. And, 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 and the play was based on a true story I had never heard of. And, and I got the lead role and played Jim Elliott in the story of his life and death with four others in the Ecuadorian Amazon at the hands of what are now called the Wauranis. And some of you are laughing and some of you are wondering why they're laughing. Um, it is one of the most famous stories in modern missions. So this, this letter that I got from HCJB acknowledged my lack of formal Bible training, but expressed a huge need in English broadcasting and asked if I would be interested in coming for a few weeks. And I'm thinking, sweet, another radio job. And I wrote back, and I asked him if a few weeks would be enough, because that just didn't seem like much. What about six months? And they said yes. 
I was really puzzled when the next letter said I would have to pay $4,000 to go there to work. (laughs) And again, some of you are laughing and some of you are wondering why that's funny. See, everyone in that church was really excited about me going to Ecuador, but nobody told me anything about support raising. Well, the Holy Spirit was doing His thing, and the thought of paying didn't stop me. And before long, I was on a plane headed to some country called Ecuador for what I thought would be six months, 25 years ago. And somebody in Quito pointed out just as we were leaving that we're supposed to be coming here for a year. (laughs) So I'm really nervous. Because in the beginning, God right? And, and, and we fit into his story. Now, I should mention a key piece to the story from before I left Canada. Don't know your experience here, but a lot of church people back then, back there, seemed quite concerned. A guy my age was unmarried. It was a really big church concern, apparently. There was also a lot of what seemed like panic talk about finding God's will and this frantic focus on finding the one God has for you kept coming up in conversations and Bible studies and as prayer requests. (laughs) I'm so glad you're laughing because I was really nervous. (laughs) In the innocence of my faith, I really thought I was missing something. And it got to the point where I found myself looking at pretty much any female that came within like a six-foot radius of me and wondering, is she the one? (laughs) And my turmoil was magnified because all my teen insecurities had made me kind of like Raj, and I was just terrified to talk to ladies. I'm probably in trouble for admitting I know who Raj is. (laughs) But when I headed to Ecuador, I was pretty sure I wouldn't even have to think about ladies for six months. I went with no idea what to expect, but I was quickly amazed by the inner peace, genuine inner peace, kind of like going to Romania. (laughs) And you're like, I don't get this, but I really like this peace thing. And I remember telling God I didn't understand it, but if he wanted me there for more than six months, he had me there. Well, less than a week later, I was introduced to this gorgeous California nurse, and my first thought was, wow. And my second thought was, now, she could never be the one for me. But fortunately, Beth has gifts of mercy and compassion, And she married me, (laughs) October 19th, 1991. And as much as I don't like talking about me in settings like this, Beth likes it when I talk about her way less. But I do want to mention this area of L.A. meant a lot to Beth in the 80s. She's a Biola Betty, (laughs) if they even call them that anymore. Or is that back with cassettes? 
Biola is where God added R.N. to Beth's name, and he used nursing to draw her to Ecuador. But while she was studying and after she graduated, Whittier became her church, and one of her main areas of ministry was with junior hires. And she had the privilege of being sent by Whittier, and I kind of just married into the Whittier family. And would you believe your pastor's mommy and daddy did premarital counseling with Beth and I when we came to L.A. for the very first time? Seems to be going okay. <laughs> we may need a little warranty work along the way. If we can check in with you for that, you know, 60,000-mile checkup. But whatever name or location the Whittier Church has, man, I got to tell you, you all get and get behind global ministries like very few places we've seen. Really, man, I've, I've not met many places like this whole Redemption Hills thing that, that gets and gets into global ministry. Now, I also feel like I should mention one thing made me hesitate as I prepared to go to Ecuador the first time because things were going really well with the high schoolers and I couldn't figure out why God would take me away from them. And I cannot tell you how excited I was to find an English-speaking high school right across the street from the radio station and the only English-speaking church just a block away. And God started opening up all these doors for face-to-face -face ministry at the school and at the church while my professional life was spent in a radio studio. And as days turned to weeks and weeks turned to months, my passion for that face-to-face -face time grew and it pushed me to tackle a Bachelor of Ministry degree by correspondence. And then we rushed to Canada to sprint through this master's degree in youth and family ministry. And the schools where I got both degrees looked past my high school grades and they gave me a lot of credit for ministry experience and now I have a couple of letters by my name. I should also mention, I thought the main reason I got my master's was to go back to Ecuador and develop a new area the director wanted at a very international but U.S.-based K-12 through school, which is where Beth has used her nursing gifts for the past 12 years, 13 years? Yeah, okay. However... Before I graduated seminary, I got word the new area I was preparing for was not going to be created after all. And all of a sudden, we didn't know what I would do when we got back to Ecuador, especially since HCJB was ending decades of English broadcasting from there. Didn't know a young man who was at the same seminary had been in touch with his dad in Quito, and that young man had been one of the students I had worked with years earlier back in Quito, and his dad was on the board of this thing called English Fellowship Church, EFC, one of the, one of the strangest yet coolest mutts of an international church anywhere in the world. Well, the EFC board asked me to come and work with youth and families. And within weeks of me getting there, the pastor's oldest son was diagnosed with cancer, and the pastor and his wife left to be with him in Virginia. And almost overnight, I was the one people were calling pastor. And I cannot even begin to list all the human reasons that never should have happened. 
But I do want to mention what's one of my favorites and maybe one of Beth's least liked reasons, at least, least liked when I tell it publicly. You remember all my insecurities? You got to go back to when I went to Ecuador for that very first six months, and I was working with the ninth and 10th graders at EFC. Well, one Sunday, the students were on vacation, so I decided to do something unusual and attend an adult, an actual grown-up Bible study. That was really strange for me. On my way to church, I walked through something a dog left behind. And I didn't notice it until after I had walked into and all the way across the study room. You remember all my insecurities. Try to imagine the kinds of things that went on inside me as I noticed those footprints across the carpet and the odor they left behind. And try to imagine what I was thinking as, for the next 60 minutes, people kept referring to and joking about what had gotten tracked in. And when I left that morning, I told myself, if it were not for the students, I would never go back to that church. If you haven't learned already, be really careful with the word never with God. I didn't know it then, but I can now see the Holy Spirit was bringing something alive in me that had been spoken to Joshua 2,500 years earlier. Do you know it? Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God, the one you've heard about for the last how many weeks, He's with you. And I can now see countless times, countless ways. He was with me even when I didn't realize it, even in the many times for years I didn't care he was with me. Like when I entered broadcasting school, convinced it was my only option in life which launched me into a career where I found a passion for research and a way to apply what has always been a passion for reading and an outlet for writing. When I quickly got thrust into the role of teacher for the first time, I tackled it like a researcher, reporter, and then I tried to write about what I found, which is really why I teach from a script. But there is another reason, and I didn't understand the reason until I was in seminary at age 37 and working on a paper on substance abuse. And I remember reading one paragraph on the long-term effects of alcohol and drug use. And I read that paragraph over and over and over, but no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't remember the key parts. And the next thing I knew, I was sitting in the library at the seminary just crying because I realized I was experiencing what I was trying to study. I was experiencing the damage I had done to my brain, which is one of the main reasons I stick as closely as I can to what I've written and rewritten and re 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 rewritten. Because when I don't, man, I can, you may already have noticed, I can get talking about some unrelated subject with no idea how to get back to the original subject or even what it was. 
or, or my mouth works before my brain does, and I end up saying something I never should have said. But the funny thing is, having written copies of the message has been part of one of the key ways God has been transforming EFC through this English as a Second Language program. But a decade ago, the lady God used to start that program that has now gone completely global asked what day of the week I had the script ready. And it often didn't come out of my printer until Sunday morning on my way into the sanctuary. So she asked if I could change my deadline to Thursday morning so she could make copies for the growing number of ESL people God was bringing to EFC. Because being able to follow the written words with their eyes helped them follow what was passing through their ears, and they had something to take with them to study and to practice and to share. Well, not long after we started doing that, the longtime church secretary died. And that dear lady had pretty much run EFC for years. And I will never forget the agony and the chaos as we tried to figure out how in the world we were even going to survive without her. Well, God brought us someone else to run the office and, and someone with an extraordinary ability to translate English and Spanish. And I get some of my best and some of my craziest ideas when I'm running. And on one run, I started to wonder if she could take what I wrote in English and add a parallel translation in Spanish. Well, she could, and she did. And as EFC continues to become more genuinely and ridiculously, hilariously international, having this parallel translation of what we try to teach on Sunday continues to be just extraordinarily strategic because English is arguably the most uniquely powerful instrument in God's hands in Quito. And He is using it as much as anything, to draw people to EFC from all around the world as they come to Quito. Now, five years ago, when we were back in L.A., we had an opportunity to share all of that with a group at Whittier. What direction is it? Doesn't matter. I'm not driving there right away. And I got this little lady in a box, and she tells me where to go. Gladys Garman, we called her. As we, we got to talk with this group at Whittier, people who were interested in global ministries, and as we wrapped up our time with them, someone asked what some of our greatest needs were, and we were seeing about 300 people on a Sunday morning, and we were reaching many more during the week, and being the lone pastor was taking a really scary toll on me. We said our greatest need was at least one other pastor, especially one with a heart for young adults. And someone in the group said, oh, we should introduce them to Jeremy and Sarah. And another Reader's Digest version of another amazing story, we did meet the McMillans, and in about a month, they celebrate three years at EFC, thanks in large part to Redemption Hill Churches. Now, yeah, you clap, you have no idea how loud we clap. <laughs> now, there is one other great piece to that story not many people know, and I don't even know if you know it. 
About two years ago, Jeremy and I started dreaming and praying about another pastor for our team. And after a couple of weeks, Jeremy and I met, and Jeremy said he had someone specific in mind who he thought would be just an amazing part of our pastoral team. Well, things got a little busy. And another Reader's Digest version of another amazing story, before Jeremy even had a chance to bring it up with the guy, the guy, Dennis Bredo, started pastoring some new church in La Habra. No, we heard then it was called Guadalajara. I don't know if that's okay. When we heard that, we were like, now we could live there. See, it's just one of many reasons I believe if we could somehow get quiet enough, we could hear God giggling. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's horrid things going on around the world. There are horrid things going on in your homes and in your lives, but there's some stuff, man. If we could get quiet, there are some things I think we'd hear God giggling lovingly, right? Because right now, God's design now has Jeremy as lone pastor at EFC for the year, and he has me here with Dennis, where, yeah, I would say we've already been clicking pretty deeply lately. And and I feel like a kid who just got home from his first week at camp, and there is so much more I want to tell you. But that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful. It seems like God's design includes having us around here for a year, because I don't have to unload it all on you at once, although it may already feel like I've tried. (laughs) And at some point, that'll have to include why I asked to have Jeremiah 6.16 included on the sheet for the morning, because I never even got to that. But that's the Reader's Digest version of us. Well, more me. And, and if you spend any time at all with us, you will find quickly with Beth, you get far better part of the whole bargain. I'm the 13th donut they give you at Krispy Kreme sometimes. <laughs> Father, thank you. You are an amazing story writer. You are the story writer. I look out, I see faces. I realize we could have all kinds of differences. And we could differ about all kinds of things. And we could probably even debate and, as frightening as it seems, divide over some things. But... There is one precious thing we have in common. Many of us have in common. One of the things we have in common is we'd love to know everybody in this place would come to have that in common. And that is certainty that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior, and only He is mighty enough to save. And because He is mighty to save, there isn't anybody He can't. And 
because of his love, there isn't anybody he won't save. All it takes is a cry for help. A cry to be saved. Jesus, you are way more than mighty enough. Amen.